Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a rehabilitation psychologist explains the emotional and psychological ramifications of concussion. People know that there's something different, that they're struggling and being able to do the things that they used to, and especially the people around them probably will be more aware of this. A vascular surgeon discusses limb preservation in chronic arterial disease. When we see the patients, we try to assess what the etiology or cause of the wound is. And an endocrinologist helps us understand how our body relies on our thyroid gland and what can go wrong when the thyroid malfunctions. Thyroid is one of the glands that we have in our body. It's a very small butterfly-shaped gland situated at the base of the neck, let's say below the Adam's apple. All that, plus a selection from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center, I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear from a surgeon about limb preservation in patients with chronic arterial disease. Then, we'll explore the thyroid gland with an endocrinologist. But first, we'll learn about what happens emotionally and psychologically in the aftermath of concussion. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. We've previously talked on HealthLink on Air about diagnosis and treatment of concussion. Today, we're focusing on the aftermath of concussion with a rehabilitation psychologist. With me in the studio is Dr. Angelina Rodner. She's a clinical psychologist and a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, and she's part of the Upstate Concussion Center. Welcome, Dr. Rodner. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. So let's start by talking about what is the typical recovery like for someone who sustains a concussion? So typically with concussions, we expect the majority of folks will recover within 7 to 10 days after an injury. Um, There is a small percentage of folks, about 30% of them, that will have a more complicated recovery. At that point, um, there's other uh, variables that can cause the increase in recovery time. So we look at what are some of those variables and how to best help the patient based on the symptoms and that they are experiencing at that time. So how does a person know um, or their loved one know if they're getting better in that seven to 10 day span? Um, How can you tell whether you're healing? Initially, after an injury, we usually recommend for people to be able to rest, Um, so resting the brain as much as possible. It's usually good for the first three days. After that, it's imperative for people to slowly start to increase their activity levels. Um, The reason why that's so important is that we are assuming that everybody was functioning, at least at an optimal level for them at that time. So we want to be able to slowly reintegrate and get back to some of that. The challenges come up when people start to struggle with headaches. Sometimes folks may have symptoms of dizziness and sometimes visual symptoms. And an even bigger challenge that sometimes can happen is a a struggle to be able to not get back to their previous level of functioning. And that can sometimes lead to some more emotional problems. If you're the person with the concussion, do you feel that you're having trouble um, thinking or concentrating or comprehending what's happening? Can you can you sort of tell? People know that there's something different, that they're struggling and being able to do the things that they used to. And especially the people around them probably will be more aware of this. Um, depending on the resources that people had before, they may be able to push through for a period of time, but that does not mean that it is not impacting their functioning. So it's important to be aware of some of those symptoms that are there. And the more that they can communicate with their primary care providers, with their loved ones, in regards to the symptoms they're experiencing, the quicker the assessment can be made. Is there a difference um, in the age of the patient? Do adults and children have sort of different experiences in recovery? The, the experiences are actually, there's a lot of similarities. Um, the only difference is that uh, children tend to have less experiences throughout their life, um, so there's not so much there. But for adults who happen to be caretakers of others who are working and for fully functioning prior to the injury, it gets more complicated. 
Well, how common is it for someone with a concussion uh, to also grapple with anxiety or post-traumatic stress disorder? It's actually common. Um, So we see it majority of the time, depending on the type of injury that the person has sustained. So if the injury was traumatic, such as a motor vehicle accident, or the person was assaulted, in those situations, we tend to see a higher rate of people experiencing symptoms of anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, There are times when people have symptoms like that even beforehand. So we all have a history. We all come with what we think of as baggage, and we have our ways of coping. And if some of those ways of coping have shifted now, and we don't have the resources to be able to attend to that, it makes it much more difficult for us to do what we're used to doing. And that increases symptoms of anxiety that can sometimes even increase symptoms of depression. So how are these things recognized? Is it, is it typically the, the provider, the medical provider that recognizes them or the patient? Sometimes it can be both. So sometimes if the patient is aware enough, okay, something's wrong, and their family members know that this is significant change, they'll have them follow up with their primary. At other times, it may be their primary that picks it up because people don't necessarily know, oh, yeah, I've had a concussion. They may just shrug it off and say, oh, I bumped my head. It's not a big deal. So I'm a little more clumsy and it takes me longer to do things. You know, I'll just do this. Um, It could be their provider that may say, wait a minute, this is different than the last time I saw you. What's the change? You know, how can we attend to this? Would um, symptoms of anxiety and PTSD, would they become apparent immediately after the injury or would it be, could it be days later, weeks later? Some of those symptoms may come up, may be experienced as a heightened response in the moment. So at any time anybody is exposed to a traumatic incident, um, there is a surge that happens, chemicals change within the body and the body reacts. And the body can sometimes go into a fight or flight response or a freeze response. That's an important thing to happen because that's the normal regulatory process of the body and the brain. The challenge is is that when they have experiences in addition to that, so if people don't get support right away or they experience the situation being helpless and they see themselves as being more vulnerable and they don't have an opportunity to attend to some of those symptoms, that's when we see some more of the development of the anxiety and PTSD symptoms. All right. Well, how does that end up impacting treatment and recovery and just overall outcome for a patient? So having symptoms of anxiety and PTSD complicates symptoms. It doesn't necessarily mean that people cannot get through them or have them treated. However, it's important to be assessed and important to get going on the treatment process. It's when they see their healthcare provider The more people experience racing thoughts, my body just feels like it's unsettled. I have a difficult time being in social situations. I'm not doing the things that I used to do. Um, Sometimes we'll see it um, if people have been assaulted where I don't want to go out in public. I don't want to be around other people. I'm not comfortable even being around my family members. And they may have more somatic symptoms at first. And typically we may see headaches or I can't tolerate the stimulation Um, So those are kind of telltale signs that, okay, something is going on. There's other times when people have been in motor vehicle accidents that they may not want to drive anymore. I'm not comfortable behind the wheel. So that's kind of the starting point where some of these symptoms tends to escalate. The hard part about PTSD and anxiety, the more we avoid something, the more comfortable the body gets. In avoiding it. Exactly. And the body is very good at rationalizing things. Um, and we all do this where, oh, I just don't like that right any, anymore. I know I used to, but I don't like it anymore. But the smaller and smaller that circle gets, our functioning really gets limited. And that's where we see people tend to struggle more. So will this anxiety, would it, would it get better on its own or not necessarily? It depends on the resources the person has. Um, Majority of the time, it's important for people to work on some of the anxiety symptoms. If they have an opportunity to re-engage back into their level of functioning in a gradual way, it could potentially improve. Um, It may not improve to the baseline where it was, but they could see some improvement. In order for the symptoms to fully heal, we have to attend to the wound. 
All right. Th- uh, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with rehabilitation psychologist, Dr. Angelina Rodner. I wanted to ask you about the psychological risk factors for someone recovering from concussion and what factors influence these risk factors. A- age, gender, type of injury, does all of that play a role? So within the civilian population, we find that women have a greater vulnerability than men. Um, that they are more susceptible to developing anxiety and PTSD symptoms. In addition to that, also, it depends on the person's uh, resiliency beforehand. So if they've struggled with anxiety or depression in the past, if they've gone through traumatic experiences, something that has caused that sense of helplessness, that can promote the symptoms of anxiety and PTSD. Um, There are times when people may not even be aware that the things that they've experienced were impactful throughout their life. But it could have been just you know, something to do with, you know, this is how I perceived myself. And in the moment, I couldn't do it. I couldn't stop something from happening. And so their perception in the moment really changes their perception of present day. And that shifts. And so this incident or whatever might bring up some of the stuff that they hadn't realized from the past that they've had similarities with, huh? Absolutely. Can you predict which patients that have concussion are liable to have anxiety or PTSD? Well, predict is a strong word. (laughs) Um, We can, based on assessments and based on symptoms reported, we can take a look at and see who's more likely to develop PTSD and anxiety. Um, Usually when I do my um, intakes, I, I try to take a thorough history of that person because I am seeing them and I'm capturing them after something has happened to them. So obviously when they're coming in to to see me, something's wrong, something's different. Um, And those are the things that I wanna look at. I really wanna find out what was your functioning like prior to this? What did you do in order to cope, in order to function with difficult situations? If that person is no longer able to access some of those resources, it can play a role of how well they will recover from treatment. So once you've identified someone who's recovering from concussion, who's struggling with some anxiety or PTSD, what happens then? What what do you offer them? So typically we try to offer them, um, number one, education, to educate them on the impact of the anxiety and PTSD symptoms that may be there. Um, and sometimes patients can be open to be able to work on some of those things, and sometimes they may not be. Um, And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just we want to be able to meet the patient where they are at that time. The other part also is that there are specialized treatments specifically to treat anxiety and PTSD. Um, So PTSD is an anxiety reaction. And one of the ways to treat it is to slowly desensitize the body and expose the body to situations and to reteach it that these things are not really dangerous. Um, Your perception may be different, but let's slowly acclimate. So there's treatments such as EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Um, And really, it's a way where the conceptualization of the treatment goes on the notion that when trauma happens, there's something that gets stuck in the brain. And the rational part of the brain and the emotional part of the brain don't really communicate. And we just go on the emotional side, more so the primitive side. And so what EMDR does is that by facilitating bilateral stimulation, it helps the body start on that process of let's talk again, not the rational, talk with the emotional. Um, And as patients go through that, they can work through a traumatic experience. Um, There's other treatments such as cognitive behavioral therapy, um, prolonged exposure, cognitive processing therapy, and all of these are ways of being able to reteach the body and the patient how to acclimate to the present day, and how to break down anxiety situations. Does it help to have a loved one or family member um, helping with the person that's recovering from concussion? Absolutely. Um, Concussion alone, it's important to have a loved one be on on the same boat, because it's not just the person who experiences the injury. Their loved ones are the ones who actually sometimes have a stronger response Because if they're used to the person who got injured functioning at a particular level, and now the dynamic in the house changes, it can create a lot of discord. So if they can be there to know what's happening, when it's happening, how they can help, the better. Well, let me ask you, uh, do you have any advice for how best to pass the time 
if you're recovering from concussion and you're supposed to be resting your brain, that oddly can be challenging. Yes, because sometimes we get the notion of where I can't do anything. And I don't know of anybody who's able to not do anything. I mean, yes, if I'm on vacation, I can unplug and kind of just rest and relax, but we can only do that so much. Right. We're active creatures. So what we really mean by the rest is that you systematically integrate rest breaks within your day. So for every two hours of activity, you should take a 15-minute visual rest break. That means sit down, rest the brain, um, and that's doing more gross motor activities where you're moving around, possibly folding laundry, cooking, cleaning, kind of things like that. If you're doing more cognitive tasks that take um, higher order thinking, then we want to, every half hour, take a 15-minute visual rest break. And then each week, we want to consecutively increase the increment of activity, but we still keep the rest break so that we can get to the point where for every two to four hours, we take a 15-minute break. And pretty much the majority of the population does that. And that lets the brain sort of heal from the concussion injury? Yes, Um, because unfortunately, the brain is the one part of the body that we cannot put into a cast. That's true. So (laughs) as it's healing, it's also working. And sometimes if we're used to doing so much and now our body cannot get used to it, it creates an internal struggle. So it's really meeting your body where it is and acknowledging that, okay, I have this invisible cast and, you know, my cast is saying I cannot do it. Oh. Well, thank you so much for this information. Very informative. My guest has been Dr. Angelina Rodner. She's a clinical psychologist and clinical assistant professor from the Upstate Concussion Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, preserving limbs in patients with chronic arterial disease. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Non-healing wounds of the foot or leg can mean that a person will face amputation. A vascular surgeon at Upstate is here in the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about limb preservation. Welcome to Dr. Palma Shaw. Thank you for being here. Now, Dr. Shaw, when we talk about non-healing wounds of the foot or leg, um, the wounds are not healing because of a circulatory issue. It's, they're not getting enough blood flow. Is that the situation? That often may be the case. When we see the patients, we try to assess what the etiology or cause of the wound is. It may be that the patient has underlying medical problems that are affecting their ability to heal the wound. It could be that the patient has what's called neuropathy, where they don't really feel pressure on the foot and have developed a pressure ulcer there. And although they have good arterial blood supply, they can't heal because they're always having causing pressure on that particular location. Because they can't really feel. They don't feel it. They have a numbness oftentimes. And that may be related to diabetes, but it may not be. Also, some patients have venous insufficiency where the blood arrives to the lower extremity or the foot, but it isn't returned well because the valves are damaged in the veins. And 10 million Americans have venous problems, so it's very common. And sometimes they have venous problems, and they also have arterial blockages. And having both of those together will increase their chance of problems healing the wounds and also increase their chance of limb loss or losing their leg. So we have to look at these patients, and many times it's not just one problem. The patients have to be assessed, and we have to determine whether or not they have adequate blood supply to the foot, the blood comes from the heart down to the toes, and then once it gets there, is the blood being returned well? And if not, are they swollen, and is that swelling limiting the oxygen delivery or arrival to the tissues that would you would need to heal? And then we have to try to determine why this happened. Was it a a poorly fitting shoe? 
Um, were they, uh, did they have an injury or bang their foot? Uh, what caused this to start? And even dry skin with a crack in the heel in a patient who may or may not have diabetes, that can set this patient up for a major problem if they have blockages in the arteries that they're not even aware of. Something as simple as dry skin, it seems like everyone might have an issue with that to some degree, but something like that can lead to a major medical issue? Absolutely. These patients, particularly diabetics who have something called neuropathy, they tend to develop heavy calluses on the bony prominences of their feet. That may be the heel, it may be the sides of the foot or the toes, depending upon how their foot is in the shoe. And when that happens, they just get a crack and they may not even notice until it gets infected. Uh, Many times these patients are referred to a vascular surgeon late because the people have not appreciated the lack of blood supply. They never knew they had a problem. Some of these patients are also smokers. Many times the smokers are even more at risk. In fact, the highest chance of losing your leg is in a diabetic who smokes. So why is, you've mentioned diabetes a lot, why is this such an issue? What is it about diabetes that sets a person up for this sort of problem? The diabetics have problems with regulation of their glucose control. The sugars may run high. When the sugars run high on a consistent basis, on a daily basis, and they're not well controlled, they have trouble with the uh, wound healing, and they also have problems with their white blood cells, which are in the blood, and those are very important, not only for fighting infection, but they're also very important for wound healing. They bring nutrition and they bring special things, enzymes, to the wound that help repair it. It's like fixing a broken sink, and you don't have a wrench. If you have a, a, or a broken wrench, so you know you can't fix it without it working properly. So when the sugars are always running high, a lot of the things in the body that would not happen in a, a non-diabetic are going to happen in a diabetic. So there'll be an increased risk of infection. They're going to have trouble healing. They oftentimes will have nerve and nerve problems related to neuropathy, they call it. And that will cause them to not appreciate whether they have too much pressure or whether if the leg is swollen, the foot is swollen, but their regular shoe usually fits, but they're more swollen in that on that day. Now they develop a blister or a wound, and they don't even know it because they can't feel it to take off the shoe and put a Band-Aid on it or have it checked. And sometimes these patients with diabetes have eye problems called retinopathy, and they can't even see the problem. They don't see well. So now they can't feel it, they can't see it, and sometimes they don't even notice it until the, it's, until the wound is infected. And then if they're a smoker also, doesn't smoking make the vessels um, constrict and get more narrow? So what so- happens in diabetics is that they tend to get blockages of the arteries below the knee. And in a smoker, they tend to get blockages in the arteries in the, in the abdomen or the, you know, the, below the stomach area and in the upper legs. So if you have diabetes plus you're a smoker, it's a double whammy. They're getting disease at multiple layers of their, of their body. And having this what we call multi-level disease above the knee, below the knee, significantly increases their chance of losing their leg because now we have to sew as surgeons or balloon or treat tiny vessels in the calf which are no more than three millimeters in size. Wow. Also, those patients um, who are diabetic, they don't compensate well for these blockages. So a person who's just a smoker who gets cramping when they walk because of blockages in their legs, um, they may notice now that they have a problem. But the diabetics don't always get that warning sign, so they don't have the opportunity to have their body repair this problem on its own. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Palma Shaw. She's a vascular surgeon at Upstate, but she's also got expertise in wound care. And so what I wanted to ask you, with these non-healing wounds, if something develops, what are some therapies that could be attempted to sort of treat that before you face the prospect of, of amputation? What are some things you try first? First, when we see the patient, we do a full physical examination, and we want to look at the wound and first try to figure out why this happened so we can remove the 
the source of that problem, whether it's a bad shoe or something like that, um, then we have to make sure it's not infected. If it's infected, then we may have some dead skin there that needs to be removed, and that's called debridement. And we put numbing medicine on the patient and we clean that up because you don't want dead tissue there. And then we may start antibiotics to treat that infection. Also, then we look at the patient and we check their blood supply. Sometimes it's obvious by listening, by feeling their foot or on the foot that there's a good pulse. But if not, we use something called a Doppler and that helps us listen to the blood supply. If we know that that's not normal, we will also obtain a study where we put a blood pressure cuff on the calf and in diabetics, even on the toe to measure the blood flow to the toe. And if it's limited, then a vascular surgeon or vascular specialist really needs to see the patient to decide what we can do next. What we do next, if this patient does have limited blood supply, is we might recommend an angiogram or a dye study or a CAT scan with, in, with dye to try to see where the blockages are. And if so, then oftentimes we can treat this with a balloon or a stent, or sometimes we tell the patient that they really need a surgical bypass, sort of a bridge from A to B around the blockages. It might be from above the knee to the foot. I've heard um, heart surgeons talk about similar things, the stents and, the, and bypasses. You're doing the same thing, we just do in a different part of the in body. In a different location, yes. Okay. Um, what about regenerative medicine? Is that something that is used for non-healing wounds? Once we've done standard wound care and we've assessed that there's no infection now, we've cleaned the wound, we know we have enough blood supply, and we've alleviated any cause, you know, uh, the problem that caused the, the wound in the first place, um, then we treat the wound for at least four weeks with standard wound care therapy. When the wound appears to be stalled out, almost like a car stalling, you need to jumpstart it. So the way to jumpstart it, aside from debriding it, cleaning off any dead cells that might be lining the wound, is to use other methods um, called advanced wound care therapies. Advanced wound care therapies may include something like hyperbaric oxygen therapy, where you put the patient in a chamber, almost like a diving chamber, and we have that here at Upstate. We use it for inpatient emergencies and also outpatient. And that can increase the oxygen concentration in the blood and help deliver more blood to the wound. That still does not replace good blood supply. Good blood supply is always most important, um, but it definitely can help in some patients, uh, particularly diabetics. Um, then we also have other therapies where we can use uh, um, artificial types of skin um, and cells um, neonatal foreskin, the foreskin from the baby, we can, has been taken and expanded and grown out in certain uh, uh, industries, and they're able to give us pieces of that in a Petri dish, and we put it on the wound, and it will jumpstart the wound. And there's several other different uh, widely available therapies that we use. Those are considered advanced and do have, we use it all here and in our wound care center, and they have good results. Tell me a little bit more about the limb preservation team here at Upstate. So the most important thing to know is that not one person can do all of these things. These patients need to be approached in a multidisciplinary effort. That means that we need the primary care doctor involved. We need a vascular specialist to assess the patient. This may That vascular specialist may or may not be the wound care specialist. And if not, then you need a wound care specialist to manage the wound and assess that. If there's any infection or bone involvement, you need to have infectious disease involved. Oftentimes, you need a nutritionist to do a nutritional assessment and make sure that the patient has enough protein and, and is not malnourished or, or needs special diets to improve their wound healing. Additionally, having a social worker involved that might be able to provide some support to the patient, they may need help at home. Oftentimes, they need visiting nursing. But they need emotional support. This is very stressful for the patient. If they're diabetic, they may need to see a diabetologist. We often refer patients to our Jocelyn uh, Diabetic Center here, which has uh, a nationally renowned expertise in diabetic uh, management. So we and we also include podiatry or orthopedic foot specialists, as well as uh, as well as specialists just to create the shoes, special shoes for diabetics or or special 
types of boots to keep weight off the foot while the wound may heal. So it's a large group of people that are required that need to coordinate care, communicate well to provide the optimal care to the patients. And there is data in the literature showing that this type of limb preservation program can not only save limbs and provide good quality care to the patients, we can save money in healthcare by doing so. I'm assuming that the sooner a patient brings forward the fact that they've got a non-healing wound, maybe the better chance for a good outcome. How would you advise a person, how do you know when something is not healing the way it should? How long do you give a wound to, to get better? Usually if the wound isn't healing over a week or two, I think the patient may want to talk to their primary care. Definitely, if the wound is not healed in four weeks, they definitely needs to be seen by a specialist. And these are wounds on arms and legs, feet? Most of the patients that we tend to see are in the lower extremities. The lower. Occasionally, there are patients with some diseases where we see wounds of the fingers, um, but the large majority is on the lower leg and foot. So if you get a cut or a, a bruise or a bump or something that's just not getting better over a week or more, it's something really to bring to the attention of your primary care provider. Yes, the primary care provider is really the front line. They coordinate all the care. They know their patients the best, and they also are aware of all of the patients' underlying medical problems that, and medications. Many of these patients, for example, if they're on steroids for any reason, it can slow down wound healing. If their diabetes is not well controlled, this will slow down their wound healing. Um, if they're on any other form of immunosuppression, if they're getting treated for cancer, they, this would slow down their wound healing. So the primary care doctor is always the best person to start with, and they know the patient the best. But what we need to do as, as, as specialists in limb preservation is we need to educate the patients so they know what to look for. That's what we're trying to do today here. We need to educate the doctors, the primary care doctors and, and the nurses and the physical therapists and all of the other patients that just might happen to encounter this patient during their day-to-day Life, For example, the patient may go to a physical therapist for management of their arthritic problems to try to get around better, and the physical therapist may notice that there's a wound. They may actually be the first person to say to the patient, I think you need to get this checked out. So a lot of this is education, communication, and good collaboration. Well, this is an important issue, and I appreciate you coming in to talk about this. My guest has been upstate vascular surgeon, Dr. Palma Shaw. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, all about the thyroid gland. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Thyroid problems can range from disorders that are harmless and need no treatment to something that can be life-threatening. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio is Dr. Nidhi Bansal from Upstate's Thyroid Center at the Jocelyn Diabetes Center, and she's here to help us understand what's important to know about our thyroids. Welcome, Dr. Bansal. Thank you, Amber, for having me here. Let's begin with some basics. Um, the thyroid is something everyone has, right? Yes. And it's in our necks. I've heard it described as a butterfly shape. Yes. So thyroid is one of the glands that we have in our body. It's a very small butterfly-shaped gland situated at the base of the neck, let's say at the base or below the Adam's apple. So people could feel it on themselves. Yes. Normally, yes. But if it's enlarged, definitely. Definitely. Okay. Now, what does it do? What's its function? So in very simple terms, thyroid acts like an engine for the body. It regulates the speed of the body. It extracts iodine, which acts as fuel from the bloodstream and produces two thyroid hormones like th thyroxine and triiodothyronine and secretes it back into the bloodstream. And these hormones then control every cell, you know, tissue and organ in the body system. So these hormones are essential? Yes, very essential. 
Why is the thyroid center part of the Jocelyn Diabetes Center? Is there some connection between diabetes and thyroid issues? Yes, there is. But basically, Jocelyn Diabetes Center, over there, we work as endocrinologists. And endocrinologists are the people, those who deal with endocrinology. And endocrinology is a branch which deals with all the body hormones, not just diabetes. Diabetes is related with insulin, which is also a hormone. But uh, we deal with all the body hormones and thyroid is one of them. There are many hormones in the body. Pituitary gland is the master gland, which secretes many hormones which act on different glands that's the pituitary gland in the brain right brain okay. exactly so at the Justin diabetes center we manage diabetes but we take care of other hormones and glands like thyroid adrenal pituitary issues transgender metabolic bone diseases osteoporosis adrenal like cushing syndrome adrenal insufficiency Okay. Even so, lipids, fat, like cholesterol, obesity. So all in nutshell, like what endocrinologists, they do, we basically do at Jocelyn Diabetes Center. Just the na- name is Jocelyn Diabetes because this is how it started. That's it. Okay. Well, let me ask you, how does a person know that their thyroid is functioning properly? Or how would you know if there's a problem? With uh, symptoms, definitely. Uh, First thing is uh, how people feel. Because as I said earlier, thyroid is like an engine. So it controls the body's energy, the speed. So when thyroid is not functioning well, people are not functioning well. So there could be hypothyroid, which is underactive state of thyroid, where thyroid is producing less hormones. Or it's overactive thyroid, where thyroid is producing too much of thyroid hormone. And both the scenarios people will feel differently and that's how they come to us. So if you feel like your body's engine is going too slow or too fast, there might be an issue with your thyroid. Yes. Okay. Now, how old are people usually um, that are dealing with thyroid issues? Is there an age range for it? or I will say almost any age. Like at Jocelyn Diabetes Center, we have pediatric group also associated. Like, you know, there we both, like peds and adults, we both work together. So we are getting a lot of pediatric population also for thyroid-related issues and obviously adult. Most commonly, it's like it's more in females in age between 20 and 50. But we are getting patients up till age 90 also. So this is something that children could be affected Ev- by? Any age. Every, okay. Anyone can get affected, yes. Well, which is more dangerous, too much or too little thyroid hormone production? I mean, both are not good, obviously. Okay. So depending on how, what extreme cases, like, you know, people are presenting to us, that uh, determines which is more dangerous. But again, uh, generally speaking, hyperthyroid can be more dangerous, but people do not feel well in either of the scenarios, hyper or hypothyroid. Well, I want to ask you a lot more questions about these um, disorders. But first, let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Nidhi Bansal. She's an endocrinologist, and we're talking about thyroid disorders. So let's talk about hyperthyroidism mm-hmm. when you've got too much of the thyroid hormone. Um Let's talk about the causes. um, Do we know what makes the thyroid go overproductive? Yes. So the most common cause, like there are a few causes, but the most common cause is Graves' disease, which is like autoimmune disease of thyroid in which our body is producing autoantibodies, which are attacking thyroid cells and overstimulating the thyroid cells, um, producing too much of thyroid hormone. By thyroid hormone, I mean thyroid thyroxine and uh, triiodothyronine which are like t4 and t3 and of course with low tsh tsh is produced by pituitary and there is a negative feedback so t4 and t3 levels are high and tsh is low so t4 and t3 are two different thyroid hormones yes what is tsh so tsh is thyroid stimulating hormone which is secreted by pituitary gland the master gland it acts on the thyroid Like an accelerator, it tells thyroid, it stimulates thyroid how much to secrete T4 and T3. So when T4 and T3, they are in ample amount, in access in the body, they negatively feed back the pituitary, please slow down TSH secretion. 
So Graves' disease affects not just the thyroid gland, but the pituitaries involved in that. You said it's an autoimmune disorder. It's an autoimmune, so it's basically autoantibodies which are attacking the thyroid cells because thyroid will be producing too much of T4 and T3. So that in, uh, you know, feedback system, it will ask pituitary to slow down a little bit because they do not need stimulation from pituitary that much. And the other causes could be like toxic adenoma in which there is a single thyroid nodule which is producing too much of thyroid hormone or there could be multiple nodules, what we call as toxic multinodular goiter. Uh, There could be simple inflammation of the thyroid called as thyroiditis, especially seen in post-pregnancy, postpartum females or with any like infection, uh, subacute viral infections. Uh, there are drugs like amiodron, other uh, lithium, other kind of drugs which can also stimulate thyroid and cause hyperthyroidism. So, if somebody is um, feeling like they've uh, got uh, symptoms that maybe mm-hmm. their doctor believes that it's tied to the thyroid, mm-hmm. what sorts of tests are done to diagnose hyperthyroidism? So, the first test obviously is a blood test to see T4 and T3 levels along with TSH. Sometimes we also check antibodies in the blood like thyroid stimulating antibodies or thyroid receptor antibodies. Sometimes we also check like thyroid peroxidase antibodies. So these are mainly the blood tests that we do. Sometimes we also do thyroid ultrasound where we look for if there are any nodules in the thyroid or how the blood flow is through the thyroid gland. And radioactive iodine uptake is another test which shows whether uh, thyroid gland is taking up too much of iodine the hyperactive cells take too much of iodine and that's how we differentiate whether it's over-functioning, hyper-functioning thyroid or just normal thyroid. Would a person be able to look at their neck and see that their thyroid is swollen? Some as, cases, yes. As a sign? In some cases, yes. People can feel the, you know, there's enlargement of the thyroid gland, which obviously feels like a goiter swelling in the neck. And when we do clinical examination, when people come to us at Jocelyn Diabetes Center, uh, during ex- exam also, we can feel that thyroid is enlarged or we can feel nodules or we can listen to increased blood flow through the gland also sometimes. Yes. So are there treatments for this? Yes. The treatment options generally are either we can prescribe people antithyroid drugs or radioactive iodine or surgery. There are some options, but we basically see how people are presenting to us, how, you know, worse the level, bad the levels are, and we have to individualize the treatment. But the mainstay of the treatment, um, these are the options, antithyroid drugs like methimazole, propyl thiouracil. These are the drugs which inhibit the secretion of thyroid hormones T4 and T3 into the bloodstream. So it makes the thyroid not make as much? Yes. And it also decreases the secretion into the bloodstream. And that's how it helps in controlling the symptoms. But like every drug can have side effects. So when people are on these medications, we always discuss about the side effects. And we have to monitor the thyroid levels periodically to titrate, adjust the dosage of these medications and also monitor their white blood cell count, their liver enzymes to make sure that they are not developing any side effects from these medications. The other option is radioactive iodine treatment, which is like a, um, people either in pill form or a liquid form, they orally take the radioactive iodine. This is generally given by nuclear medicine department at Upstate Hospital. And uh, overactive cells, they basically take up more iodine and slowly this iodine kills the overactive cells. And this is how it helps in, again, calming down the thyroid, decreased production of the um, excessive hormones. People sometimes do become hypothyroid because sometimes the cells get, you know, uh, kill and now thyroid is not producing enough thyroid hormone. So they may require liver thyroxine. That's a thyroid hormone supplementation supplement later. So the radioactive iodine treatment, is that um, a solution that you go and have this done and then you're, you're You go home, cured? yeah. You're, yes. So most of the times, one-time treatment is good enough. Very rarely people have required twice. Generally, we do not, like if two times also it's unable to kill the cells or people are still symptomatic, we generally do not go for the third time and we look for other options. And surgery is the kind of another option. 
uh, where people can get lobectomy if there is one thyroid nodule which is producing over uh, you know too much of thyroid hormones or complete thyroidectomy complete thyroid is taken removing out removing the thyroid yes okay generally it's done in cases where it's a big thyroid it's compressing already on trachea or esophagus causing compression symptoms changes in the voice pregnancy uh pregnant females where we really need rapid correction of thyroid disease thyroid storm uh which is like extreme presentation of hyperthyroidism people are admitted in the hospital they might need to go undergo surgery so uh, thyroid storm that's it sounds like an acute sort of presentation yes. of yes so hyper- that's we can discuss that also that's important um so surgery is kind of option for that in those scenarios people those who have graves of thalmopathy like uh, eye issues associated with graves disease um or people those who are allergic to thyroid antithyroid drugs they develop any side effects because of that or allergic to iodine those are the people when we um we whom we refer for surgery okay well i do i want to ask you about sort of i guess the opposite the hypothyroidism mm-hmm. when you have too little yes. um how does that present how does a person know that they've got that so hypothyroid means uh underactive thyroid in which thyroid is not producing enough t4 and t3 and pituitary obviously will then produce more of tsh to stimulate thyroid to produce more t4 t3 so hypothyroid is a condition in which everything in the body slows down so people generally present with lot of fatigue like they don't want to even get out of the bed extreme fatigue weight gain with low uh, even with uh, less appetite constipation like the gi tract will slow down so constipation memory uh, fog people f- huh. forget things even the heart sometimes you know slows down what we call as bradycardia so slower heart rate s- slower heart rate mood upset mood depression people are not able to show any kind of emotions um so these are some of the symptoms that people can present with hypothyroidism now is that treated with medication as well yes so the treatment is uh we treat people with thyroid supplement which is levothyroxine which is easily available it's long acting it's once a day pill we generally tell people to take it at first thing in the morning empty stomach for first few months we have to titrate the dose to see uh, what dose uh, will uh, they will function best and once we know this is the dose and their weight is stable then it's only like once a year they need to see us for the workup i've heard you mention um nodules yes. and it, does the nodule have anything to do with cancer because i've heard about thyroid cancer as well Yes. So basically thyroid nodules are kind of a growth within the thyroid gland. It could be solid or fluid filled. Most of these nodules are benign, non-cancerous. They are just hyperplastic growth. And most of us will have thyroid nodules when we do ultrasound on people or incidentally just catching up on um when we are doing imaging, CT scans or other things. But very few people um they can have like cancerous growth. and when people come to us for thyroid nodules we generally do fine uh, sorry ultrasound at Justin Diabetes Center we try to look how the nodules look uh, under the ultrasound so with the size texture vascularity there are many characteristics that we look when we are doing ultrasound and then we can like give the probability whether it looks more benign or cancerous and whether people need to undergo finidal aspiration or like biopsy of those nodules we also do biopsies at Jocelyn Diabetes Center then and there and we send slides to pathologist this is how we determine whether it's cancerous or non-cancerous well thank you so much for being here to talk about thyroid disorders my guest has been Dr. Nidhi Bensal she's an endocrinologist at the Jocelyn Diabetes Center at Upstate I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse. with this week's selection. Katherine Howard-Mahan is a professor of writing at Ithaca College. She is the author of 38 published poetry collections, most recently What the Piper Promised, which won the new Alexandria Press Chapbook Competition. 
She loves reading, teaching, writing, and thinking about fairy tales, as you can hear in her first poem, How to Get Through the Mountains. Wear nothing shiny, ebullient, or made of clinging silk. Clean your shoes. Even one speck of diamond dust will catch the ogre's eyes. Fold up into tiny squares any hat you dare to own. Blue felt is a good example, or cotton the color of blood. Make yourself as thin as a tongue between the lips of a snake. Look dead. Giant fingers will probe your dreams, lift your soft breath into green light. Pretend nothing matters to you but the toads they place between your teeth. Move on. Shuffle, as long as you do not dance. Your survival is thin, rippled glass snapped by whim or quota or chance. She's also an exquisite observer of the everyday, as her short poem, Pleasant Grove, attests. Pleasant Grove for Lemoyne. From the highway, the road is straight, and then it curves. Wide trees, tall trees, leaves too brown in rainless October, so warm that crickets still call. The van is waiting. The grave lies open. The grave lies open for the small black box the undertaker carries over with practiced grace, with kindness. Wonderful birds were the last words of the man we've come to bury. The hospice window opened out to feeders heaped with seed. A simple stone, their names, no dates, where my friend, his widow, will join him. She nods and smiles as I gently place small paper cranes with exquisite wings. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, strokes in young people and what new doctors are learning from the theater. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.